been called a legendary teacher and she is that I know I was a uh, an intern at one point at UC Davis Medical Center and as we mentioned at the top of the program Dr. Faith Fitzgerald has been on our short list of desired guests for many a year and we're pleased to be able to say at this point welcome to Radio Parallax Dr. Faith Fitzgerald well thank you very much Doug I was privileged to be able to hear you uh, talk at the Sacramento Valley Medical Society uh, I guess it's a couple months ago where you talked about some historical figures and how they fit into medicine and that's not something that I think a lot of people can can pull off but it was it was a great talk tell us a little bit about why you're interested in that and and why you give such talks medicine is the application of science to people and the difficulty is that if you know only the science then it becomes bad science because you are applying it to uh, a system of culture or religion or of uh, belief or of history that you don't understand. So what I've tried to do is to uh, engage the minds of really dedicated young physicians, medical students, residents, and as evidenced by the turnout at the Sacramento Medical Society, older physicians as well, in an entertaining way of mixing all of those humanities with medicine. And I thought the best way to do that would be to present, as if they were patients being admitted to UC Davis, the medical histories of famous dead people. (laughs) So I chose a whole bunch of dead people who had interesting deaths, by the way, and I would present them much in the same way as one of my students or interns would tell me about a patient they admitted on the wards last night. And that would be their story, and we'd go through the medicine, but also everything else that they did. Because what I'll ask them is to guess who it is and then to guess what the diagnosis is. And then I'll have about 15 minutes afterwards to do whatever I like and tell them all of the stories that surround that individual or an ancillary story, something that is related but not necessarily directly. For example, there are some people that young Americans never heard of. One of them is Thomas Beckett. You know the story with Beckett who was Archbishop of Canterbury when Henry II was king. And it's a good story. But I'm thinking, if I present the death of of Beckett, the students are all going to look at me with blank faces because they don't know who Beckett is. But if I present the death of Elvis Presley, (laughs) they'll know who that is. And then Elvis Presley sang about dogs, as in Hound Dog. And there's a famous poet, T.S. Eliot, who wrote about cats, As a matter of fact, this poet was the kind of poetic basis for the famous musical Cats. So I can get to T.S. Eliot. And another thing that he wrote was something called Death in the Cathedral, which was about the death of Thomas Beckett. So I can lead people through from the familiar to the unfamiliar. To weave it together a bit. Weave it together a bit and have some fun as well. Well, one one person you talked about, I think we were just, as an example, a, a military figure you were talking about in recent American history, and that was an interesting story. We were uh, on the wards, and there was an elderly gentleman who was Filipino. And I'm looking at him as the medical student is telling me. He's an 82-year-old male who came in with chest pain and cough. His x-ray showed, and I, I stopped him for a minute because he was ignoring the person. And I was looking at this man 
I don't know if the listeners all know this, but we are privileged in Sacramento to have a group of the veterans of the Japanese occupation of the Philippines during the Second War. And that the Filipino army, which was really created by Douglas MacArthur, the great commander of the Pacific uh, field of war in the Second War, um, were, fought with American troops. These Filipinos, after the war, were not given any of the benefits of the veterans. So they had finally come uh, in the extremity of their age, most of them in their 70s and 80s now, uh, to uh, petition for those benefits. So one of those patients had arrived at our hospital with pneumonia. And I asked him uh, whether or not he had been on the Bataan Death March. The Japanese had chased the combined American and Filipino army down a long peninsula uh, beyond Manila Bay called Corregidor, at the, uh, sorry, called Bataan, at the tip of which was a little fortified island named Corregidor. And they had held off the besieging army of the Japanese for a long time, finally ran out of ammunition, ran out of food. Douglas MacArthur was ordered out of there by the then president of the United States, Franklin Roosevelt. But the troops ultimately had to surrender. And the Japanese army had then marched those troops, Americans and Filipinos, hundreds of miles up that same peninsula, the Bataan Peninsula, to prisoner war camps. And many died along the way. So I asked this old man, I said, were you on the Bataan Death March? Oh, yes, he said, very hard. And tell us a little bit about it, and he did. And then I said, did you ever meet Douglas MacArthur? He said, oh, yes, very great man, very great man. I said, you know, there's some difference of opinion about that. <laughs> and he said, oh, no, very great man. And in the meantime, I'm looking now at this surround of three third-year medical students, uh, or two, I've forgotten, uh, an acting intern, which is a senior medical student, and the intern and the resident, and the resident has to be, what, 26, 27 years old, and they all had this blank look on their face. And I asked the resident, the oldest of the group, I said, you have heard of Douglas MacArthur, haven't you? You know, old soldiers never die, they just fade away. He said, wasn't he some sort of admiral or other? <laughs> okay, well, never mind that idea. But but their attitude towards the old man changed. Now he was a person of some significance. That is, he had played a major role in American history. And I came in a little later that night, and the medical student was still chatting him up, you know, trying to get more of the story. Outstanding. He was a happier man, too, because now he was a hero instead of just, you know, 82-year-old Filipino male with chest pain. You've taken a look back, and I like uh, on more than one occasion to try and blend together. This, you know, that, that's a that's a wonderful example. But um, something that, that caught my eye 20 years ago, Dr. Fitzgerald, I still have a, a copy of Consultant Magazine, which uh, used to be a member of their editorial board. Mm -hmm. You wrote a very entertaining article called Improving Your Skills in Physical Diagnosis, and you titled and subtitled it Learning to Emulate Sherlock Holmes. Right. And, uh, of course, people may or may not know that the legend that Arthur Conan Doyle, who, who gave the world uh, Sherlock Holmes, was actually a physician and inspired by physicians. Yes, he was. Arthur Conan Doyle was a medical student at the University of Edinburgh at the end of the uh, 19th century. And then he went on to take specialty training in ophthalmology. And he couldn't earn a living. It was said that his major fee was putting down a neighbor's dog. <laughs> and he, he was married. He had a child to support. And thinking how he could do this and always having sort of the enjoyment of being a writer, he submitted a novelette 
through the Strand, which was one of the popular daily magazines, uh, sorry, monthly magazines in Britain. And it, it created a character named Sherlock Holmes, whom he based upon one of his teachers. And that, that professor, whose name was Joseph Bell, was a professor of medicine and surgery who taught Arthur Conan Doyle uh, his medical curriculum. And as Arthur Conan Doyle told the story, the students were always mesmerized by Joseph Bell because he was a superb observer. And it was said that he could walk into a waiting room and tell not only the diagnosis of the patient sitting there, whom he'd never met before, but the man's occupation, what he'd done in the past, and how he'd got to the clinic. By what mode of transportation? Simply by observation. The most famous story, I suppose, is a man came in with chipmunk cheeks, giant parotid glands, like kids get when they get the mumps, uh, which almost nobody has seen anymore because of the effect of vaccine, but still, some will remember the mumps. And he said, oh, he said, you were a soldier, weren't you? Yes, sir. Ah, and you were in the army? Yes, sir. And you were in the band? Yes, sir. And the students are all standing there because this patient has not said anything but yes, sir, and yet all of this information has been evident to Dr. Bell. And how did he know? The man sat upright with a military posture. He carried his handkerchief in his sleeve and therefore uh, had worn a uniform without pockets. And the very large parodids he had said were due to his having played a wind instrument in the band uh, and it was well known that air then is pushed up into the ducts of the parotid and causes chronic inflammation. Louis Armstrong. He wasn't born like that. It's from playing the trumpet. And having pronounced this triumphant uh, example of, of just pure observation, he turned to the man and he said, you were in the army? Yes, I was. And you were in the band? Yes, sir, I was. And you played the trumpet? No, the drum. <laughs> So it wasn't always accurate. But he took Dr. Bell's example of close observation and deduction from the observation, and he said, you know, that's very like um, a detective. And if I just kind of switch the way we think from doctors working with the clues of physical diagnosis and history to crime, I could create a really super detective. So in consequence, Sherlock Holmes was born. And, of course, through the intervals since that first publication, The Study in Scarlet, Sherlock Holmes has probably been the hero of more films, and now we're just coming out with another one. Right, another one. Another one, and really captured the imagination to the point where his name is synonymous with people who are keenly observant and make good deductions. So I thought, all right, let's, uh, let's try that. And you're full of all kinds of tidbits here. Just looking at this article, I didn't realize Social Security cards, you could actually tell where somebody's from by the numbers. Yeah, evidently the numbers are assigned according to the state or major region from which they are assigned. In California, I think five is one of the first numbers, and those will tell you which block of states people are from. And there are certain numbers that were in the early days of Social Security assigned to people who did not voluntarily join into the Social Security system. And uh, railroad workers were one of those groups. They had very strong unions. This was in the, uh, in the late 30s and 40s. And so they had their own Social Security numbers. And seeing those numbers, you could, in retrospect, potentially diagnose exposure to asbestos because asbestos was used to line the great brakes of the engines 
and anyone working around that, every time that engine stopped and the brakes were on, it would aerosolize the asbestos of the brake pads into the air and affect the bystanders. Any medical students listening, take note. <laughs> we don't see that many of those anymore. You, know. uh, you mentioned the mumps a moment ago yes. and how, how seldom we see that due to the, uh, the great success of vaccinations. And the consultant did a thing a few years back looking back at how 20th century vaccinations had defeated, well, nine diseases. Defeat may be a little bit too premature, but uh, yeah. had certainly rendered them rare. Yes. And we see a lot of controversy about things like uh, about vaccinations these days. Uh, what's your perspective on that? Well, you know, it's, it's almost uh, an eternal conflict uh, going way back in human history, which is the well-being of the individual, particularly in societies in which individualism is valued culturally, versus the well-being of the group as a whole. Each of us has to, in order to form part of a social matrix, voluntarily or under oppression, give up certain things to make certain that the system works correctly. Because if everyone did exactly what they liked or got exactly what they could get, it would be anarchy and uh, really, in a sense, the robber baron sort of society, in the latter case of getting anything you can, no matter what harm it does to others. If, on the other hand, everybody acts in everybody else's interest to the point where individuals can be severely compromised for the group as a whole, then you have a system in which the individual is sacrificed for the group. And the dissonance between those two is most common, I think, in medicine and public health. Public health, for example, quarantine people. That's not good for them. It certainly deprives them of their freedom, but for the good of the whole, it has been justified. Vaccination may cause individual bad reactions to people who perhaps unvaccinated would never have got the disease anyhow. And yet it provides a herd immunity that means the disease becomes less prevalent and hundreds of others don't get it. How you balance these is, is always a matter of of thoughtfulness, and uh, my my inclination, of course, is to say that it depends on the severity of the disease, upon the absolute risk to the individual who's being told they must be vaccinated, and the choices have to be made. And in our society, because we are a, a diverse and, I think, rather liberty-loving group of people, it's most difficult. My take on it is that I find that, that people who don't want to vaccinate their children have to know that this does put other children at risk. And I think also, just from my perspective, study after study seems to keep showing that the, these, these vaccinations are, are safe. And well, they're much safer than the people are yeah. fearing. See, what you're, what you're doing is, is dealing with a highly emotional issue which is a parent's love for and protection of their children as if a cognitive argument using data would work. Fundamental mistake. Okay. That's just not true. Because um, we are of two brains, right? We've got the cerebral cortex, which contains a whole bunch of data or information. And then we have this deeper brain, which contains what I'll call values. That is, what's more important? Those two coordinate. And in some, the emotional brain um, is greater than the, the data brain. And it goes back to T.S. Eliot, our friend from uh, the murder in the cathedral, and Beckett and Elvis Presley. He, he said in the 1940s, he said, 
Where is the wisdom we have not lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? And literally what he's saying is that there are three kinds of thinking. And wisdom uh, involves some value judgment. I know what the data are. I know how they apply to this patient. Now what's the best thing to do? And that's a value judgment. Good, bad, best, worst. Those are values, not data. And you try to use the data to guide you in making decisions, but some of it has to rest with this kind of fundamental emotionality, which is what says what's more important than others. And that depends on the patient's background if they're making the decision or the parent's background if they're making the decision. It's, it's not considered legit, and particularly amongst the intelligentsia, you have to come up with data. And so there are a lot of false data, things that most of us don't think are true that are used to justify actions. But I think, you know, if you understand that very often it's an act of protection and an act of love, it can't be all that condemned and it certainly can't be ridiculed. I do believe, however, that vaccination has made an enormous difference in the well-being of individuals in society and that overwhelmingly it should be done. Well, let's mention one, well, one, the only example that medicine can, can offer of actually curing a disease, eliminating it from the face of the earth, that being smallpox. It's not gone. Well, it's still in laboratories. Mm-hmm. You're making me nervous just saying that. It's not gone. <laughs> it's still in laboratories. It's still, it's still on ice somewhere in an institute, I guess, in Russia and in, in somewhere at Fort Detrick, Maryland, I mm-hmm. guess. Maybe. I don't know where they're keeping it, and good. <laughs> I'm glad. If I don't know, maybe nobody knows. <laughs> that would be good. It's a famous thing in medical history, Edward Jenner and the like, going back cowpox, mm-hmm. but uh, but yet, um, <laughs> sort of sad to note, it's, the score is, uh, is disease... Uh, I guess, infinity and medicine one. Look, ancient biologic warfare. Every species, including pathogenic species to human beings, is fighting for its life. As a matter of fact, it's one of the reasons why we have the antibiotics. These are microorganisms, mostly soil livers, who, in order to work out their little patch and defend their place, have to produce substances from their bodies that repel or kill invaders. Then... Those same substances is what we can take originally, as with uh, things like streptomycin from a fungus, penicillin from a fungus, and say if this organism can kill streptococcus or can kill tuberculosis, maybe we can use it to do the same thing in another thing. But we, we're taking from microbiobial um, species all sorts of hints. And... Biologic warfare will continue to go on. As an antibiotic, for example, becomes effective, the the organism will change. Are, are you optimistic, by the way, since there, there's a lot of thought now that, hey, we may have been missing all of this, this warfare going, a lot of these compounds that are being used by this bacteria or that, that we may be able to get our, our, our sort of uh, arsenal of antibiotics topped up. We're, we're, medical science are concerned that we're losing our effectiveness. I remember reading a... Uh, a paper, uh, oh, well, not the original paper, but a summation of it in some popular magazine uh, that I can't recall what was. But it had to do with the fact that some um, soil experts had gone out and assayed the microbial population of a really very small patch and found thousands of um, other organism-repelling substances produced by the multitude of inhabitants of that patch, which had never even been thought of. Which is encouraging. Which is encouraging, and it just simply means we have to be nimble on our feet and keep changing, which we have done. 
By the way, the strict definition of antibiotic is a substance produced by a living organism that kills or repels another living organism. So sulfa is not an antibiotic, it's chemical. And that's a whole other area of chemotherapy, infectious disease chemotherapy, that was begun also in the 19th century by a wonderful guy named Paul Ehrlich. Dr. Uh, Ehrlich's magic bullet. Dr. Ehrlich's magic bullet, an arsenical compound. That's actually a fascinating story the public may not be aware of. He, uh, Ehrlich set out to beat syphilis and, and did find a compound that was effective, and you'd think the world would have, you know, thrown roses in his path, and instead he was criticized by lots of people. Yeah. Paul Ehrlich was a German Jew in mid-19th century, went to university, became a physician, but really wasn't all that interested in clinical medicine. He loved dyes, and particularly colored dyes, the aniline dyes, because he found that if you add the dye to some tissue, such as the nerve, in a, a preparation not of a living person but in the, in the Petri dish, that it turned blue or something. And this was a tremendous discovery because now, with the use of the microscope, almost anybody could tell one tissue from another if it stained differently. And the gram stain, of course, is very um, sort of evocative of this descendant of Paul Ehrlich because that's the way that we use uh, to diagnose the major categories of pathogenic bacteria. So now he's got the aniline dyes that specifically state, uh, stain specific tissues and microbial organisms, allowing doctors to actually see them in clear form. And then he began to think, if a chemical, such as the dye, goes to only this tissue, let's say a nerve and no other, it must have, and he invented this term, an affinity for the nerve, something that causes it to link together. And that idea of affinity of the attraction as lock uh, and key of one substance for anything in the body is something that stayed with us uh, from, well, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1908. It's now 2010. If you design a compound that fits like a key into that particular lock, mm -hmm. it could be chemical, it could be an antibiotic. And by the way, he was working with Emil von Behring, who's the guy who came up with diphtheria, antitoxin. Mm -hmm. And he said, how about toxin and antitoxin? Same thing, affinity. Mm -hmm. Binds together and neutralizes it. He invented the term chemotherapy because he's thinking, as a chemist, I can go almost anywhere. I can do immunology, I can do cancer, I can do infectious disease. Oh, infectious disease. Now, here's this situation where they had this terrible epidemic at the turn of the century, uh, latter half of the 19th, early part of the 20th century, actually, of syphilis. It was everywhere. It killed people in a much faster way now. Mostly now getting syphilis is kind of inconvenient. Then it killed people. And in large numbers, it decimated the aristocracy and the hierarchy of Europe. It would take out princes or paupers. It didn't care. And because it was sexually transmitted, it was everywhere. And so he decided that he would try to find a chemical that could, once the treponeme, which is the, or, uh, the bacteria that causes syphilis, was discovered by a Japanese scientist, that he would find a chemical that could paralyze and kill the treponeme in the host problem. What if the chemical killed the host, that is, the patient? <laughs> Which those chemicals seem to do on a regular Which basis. Which they did on a regular basis, <laughs> because the one that he was thinking of uh, was based in arsenic. <laughs> oh, a well-known poison. 
but he'd used it before in trypanosomiasis, which is a mosquito-borne fever uh, in many of the colonies of Germany that they had then in uh, Africa. And he said, all we have to do is take this compound, which does kill the treponeme, and alter it chemically so that we maximize the killing of the treponeme and minimize the killing of the host. But then, he said, you know, it'll take 10, 20, maybe 30 biochemical manipulations. It took 606. And that's why that first successful infectious disease chemotherapeutic was called 606. And the magic bullet, in fact, was the fact that they'd finally had something you could give a patient that was not a general, it was not for the fever or any of the other symptoms. It was specifically designed to hit the causative organism. What a brilliant concept. But, you know, for all of his troubles, Paul Ehrlich, I remember seeing a, a documentary on him. He, he came up with compound 606, and he gives it to people, and their syphilis is cured. and. Yeah. And the church then roundly criticized him. These people are sinners, and this is God's punishment, and you, doctor, are interfering. Well, there was part of that at the beginning of the HIV epidemic, too, you'll remember. We have not learned a whole bunch in the interval century about disease, and we tend, I think most people do, it's an ancient custom to associate disease with, uh, with pestilence, with sin. You know, if you were really good and behaved really well, you wouldn't have this. And... It's a very American thing still, you know. Um, what did I do to deserve this? That is, what did I do wrong to deserve this? And, and or, if only you had done this, you wouldn't have the diabetes. If only you had dieted and exercised and so on, this would not have happened to you. And with cancer, I'll tell you, people are blaming other people all the time for getting cancer. You know, you, you had the wrong habits, you didn't do the right preventive medicine. Right. I think we do have to sort of realize that uh, it's, just, it's, it's just a matter of fate sometimes. Cosmic whimsy. Sometimes it just happens, and people are searching for all the things they did wrong, and it just adds to the misery. I mean, we, we quoted the immortal uh, philosopher Jack Benny on last week's program. I think they gave him an Emmy one time, and he said, you know, I, I really don't deserve this, mm -hmm. but, but I have arthritis. <laughs> I didn't deserve that either. Yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's true. It's not to do with desserts. Well, Dr. Fitzgerald, there's so many things we could talk about, uh, and I hope we will talk again in the future. But before we go, let's let's address the, something you love. You, you love yeah, being a teacher, I and, do. and you're and you're optimistic about uh, the the young crop of medical students that you are teaching currently. I am always optimistic about the young. This wonderful scene, Oh God, Part One, where George Burns plays God, come to the now secularized Southern California, and in a sense hires. John Denver, who's playing a grocery clerk, to go out and make people believe in him again, believe in God. Denver comes back about halfway through the movie, and he talks to George Burns as God, and he says, don't you sometimes just regret the whole thing? And George Burns says, what thing? He says, you know, Adam, Eve, the, the, it all turned out so badly. <laughs> and uh, George Burns takes a puff on his stogie, and he smiles, and he says, oh, no, he says, young people, best thing I ever did. <laughs> And I think it's true. I'll tell you, this crop of medical students, and this has been true now for about the past 15 or 20 years, I think are probably the best ever to enter the profession. They've been told that they won't get rich, that they'll be creatures of the system instead of its masters, that they won't have any respect, and that, uh, you know, they're running risks um, of disease and death. And even doctors are telling the college students not to go into medicine. And those who do say, nonetheless, I just have to be a doctor. It's really nice, and most of them, 
want to serve the underserved in some way, and particularly strong within the past five years, has been to go out into the into the world, uh, global medicine, um, the developing countries. They have many of them had experiences already, where they've gone to India or to Nicaragua or to Honduras or to uh, Haiti. I could use them now. Uh, to a variety of places and done done work, and they've had this this epiphany in a sense, saying, "This is what I want to do. I want to do noble work," and they're unashamed of saying that. I'm like George Burns, young people, best thing I do. Dr. Faith Fitzgerald, it's been our great pleasure to speak with you. I hope that uh, we will do this again. You never know. Thank you. Thank you.